This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. So as I said, uh, LRT has somehow found its way back into the news. It's it's the LRT. I've decided is kind of like the character that was in um, Fatal Attraction, Glenn Close's character in Fatal Attraction. Every time, and or like Jason in Friday the Thirteenth. Every time you think it's dead, it pops back up and comes back to life. So. Yeah, LRT is back in the news. You heard about it today with Bill Kelly. You heard about it with Scott Thompson. You read it on the, in The Spectator. You heard it on CHCH. Uh, it has been everywhere. They are now talking about the fact they're going to have to widen parts of James Street North. They're going to have to widen part of Main Street West. Uh, sorry, not James Street North. Of York Boulevard, widen part of Main Street West. And the York, or the, now I've got it all mixed up. And the James Street North spur line is now going to be gassed. But we're going to have more bus rapid transit to the mountain and possibly to the airport. I don't know about you, but this whole thing, when it, every time it seems to get just a little clarified, then becomes really confusing again. And it always seems like it's a moving target. Whether you support it, whether you don't support it, you can't argue that it's not seeming like it's a huge moving target. That if you were to ask someone today, even the staunchest supporter of LRT, explain exactly what the LRT is going to be in Hamilton. I would defy anybody to do that because we don't know. Even the mayor says he doesn't really know. So all this talk, on and on and on, all this talk about the LRT and what it's going to be, what it's not going to be, how it's going to affect us, how it's not going to affect us, what the costs are, on and on and on. I thought it was time to move away for a second from theory, which is all we're talking about right now. It's all about theory to the real, to the practice. And the only way to do that is to go somewhere that is experiencing the LRT invasion that's having an LRT put in and find out what's exactly gone on in this process. Paige Desmond covers uh, City Hall for the Waterloo record. Kitchener-Waterloo is in the middle, in the final stages, I guess, of a construction of the construction of their LRT. Uh, Paige joins me now. Paige, thanks for doing this tonight. Hi, thanks for having me, Scott. Uh, l- let me just throw it wide open to start with this. How do the good people of Kitchener-Waterloo feel about the words LRT today? There is no one answer to that question. <laughs> um, I think it's about the same now as it has been from the beginning. There are people who you know, are really excited about it, uh, people who have sort of accepted it, and then there's always those people who just aren't going to be there for it no matter what happens. It sounds like, from what you're describing, that uh, maybe opinions have not changed all that much, but positions have been dug in a little bit more. I I think there is sort of a a middle group that weren't really sure how they felt that are sort of accepting it and saying, well, maybe I can see the benefit. But I think there's always uh, going to be the sort of hardcore supporters and the opposition that uh, say no way. Okay, so let, let's walk through this. How far into the process is this right now? Because I know there's no, nothing running yet, but how, when did it start and how far along are you? So the first full construction season was 2015, uh, some minor construction in 2014. As of end of December, we're about 90% complete construction uh, with a projected launch of early 2018. So that's not awful. That's three years of, right? Three years of basically being dug up? Well, 2015 and 2016 have been pretty rough. (laughs) (laughs) I've heard that. I've heard that even those who support it sometimes have a hard time talking the other people off the window ledge at times when they get stuck driving all over the city to get where they're going. I mean, it's a short time, but it's frustrating. 
there, there's just really no way around it. I mean, even the municipalities in the region all tried to sort of rework their construction schedules, keeping in mind that LRT construction would be happening. But when you're talking about, you know, a route that's going through the cores of two cities, it, you just can't get around it. It's going to be a bit of a hassle. Okay, so honestly, uh, without, you know, without overstating it, um, how has it been, really? I mean, it, it's easy to say, you know, hyperbolically, well, it's been terrible. But, I mean, realistically, has it been as bad as a lot of people describe for getting around? Uh, I might be understating it. If I'm a business owner <laughs> pro- in, you know, the uptown Waterloo core, they'd probably say I'm understating it. It's, it's been really tough for some people. Well, what about that? There, there, have, there must have been businesses affected by this, I would guess. Have, have, do we know? Have there been a number of businesses that have been shut down because of this? There's talk that some closed specifically because of the challenges of LRT. I mean, the Uptown Waterloo had months and months at a time of closures, and then you're talking dirt and detours. And, you know, I, th- I, think, it was, I think it was really tough on them. They were pretty happy to see... Uh, the roads open for the holiday shopping season at the end of November. What about the flip side, though? Are there are you hearing stories that there are businesses that are now opening along the route because they see potential there? I've heard anecdotally some businesses that are interested because of the route. I think we hear more on the residential development side. Um, developers are attracted because of the LRT. I don't know if you can do this, but generally, uh, you know, being very non-specific, when this whole thing got going, and, and as you talk about the people who are on the very positive side and the people who are on the negative side, was is there some way to break down who sort of fell into those categories? I mean, here in Hamilton, uh, the positive side, many of them seem to come from the inner city, the urban uh, areas that will benefit directly from this, and the people in the suburbs seem to be very much against it. Is that similar to what the case was there? I'm not sure it would be. I, I see a mix. You know, I hear from young people that are living in the core. I hear from, you know, older adults that think it's a great idea. There are people in the townships who support it because they see it as a way of limiting, you know, sprawl and new subdivisions of agricultural land. So I really think it is uh, is a mix. I, I've actually heard, and I don't know if this is correct, is there a delay with getting the LRT vehicles themselves? Yes. So we are on, I guess, the third delay now for delivery of the first vehicle, and it has delayed the launch of the actual system. Um, it was expected to launch late 2017, and now we're into early 2018. And is there any... Uh, Anything to believe that will actually happen or that will not happen? Or, or is everyone just saying, okay, it's actually coming now? You know, I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't stake a bet on anything. <laughs> and I think that's, that's the same approach the politicians are taking. We're all saying, let's wait and see when that train gets here. Um, at the same time, there is talk that the bigger concern is getting the final train because that really impacts operations. Well, sorry, what does that mean? Um, so we have 14 trains that have been ordered, and we need the full, or in theory, need the full 14 to start running the system. Okay, so you can't so, get five of them and do it on limited usage. It has to be the full thing. I mean, they, they could, but then it's going to be not producing the revenue that they've based 
you know, their mm. operations model on. Okay. So that's when it gets a little tricky. What about the budget? I mean, you're down at City Hall, and this has to be a topic of conversation down there. Is it believed that this is coming in on budget? The officials say it is. I think it's probably pretty close. Uh, I think I'll stick to just that for now. <laughs> <laughs> there's nothing, put it this way, there's, so far there's been nothing to suggest one way or the other, except for we think it's happening. Yeah, pretty much. So far, things seem to be coming in on budget based on the information we have, um, but we're not there yet. How does it all look? Because one of the things, again, that has been talked about here is the aesthetics. Now, it's going right through the downtown, and there's got to be overhead power lines and all these things, and that's been a concern for some people. When you drive around now and you see it getting closer to being ready, is there a, for lack of a better term, a pleasant aesthetic to what you're seeing or does it look like an eyesore? I don't think it's either one really. I mean you look at it and it's it's you know a city street. (laughs) It's a city street (laughs) with a train track in the middle of it. Yeah I mean it really is it's uh you know it's it's just a street. I I don't see a big difference but that's just my personal opinion. (laughs) Paige I'm, I'm wondering when you Again, when you look at a project like this, and I know it's a huge project because of the the scope, I suppose, geographically of how far and wide the digging has had to be, but has it really been handled differently or does it seem like a different kind of project from any other large municipal or provincial building project or, or has it seemed very much the same the way at City Hall and with the people and the way it's been handled? Oh, this, is, this has been a totally different scale um, to what we usually see they have you know i don't even know how many public relations staff trying to deal with businesses and help uh, answer residents questions there's you know weekly updates or bi-weekly updates going out of road closures it's been a whole new scale it and again i'm going to put you right on the spot and ask you what is probably an impossible question but just again you're taught you hear from people your email and your phone i'm sure when you write a story anytime you if you're like the people here anytime you write about lrt that is a instant invitation to email or to write their call the person who has written it so i'm sure you're hearing from people yeah do you expect that when this whole thing is up and running that the anger the frustration that the opponents had will go away. Are you getting a sense that it's wavering at all or fading now that it's getting closer to the end? I don't think so. I think the the thing um, that people are even more sharpened on now is budget and the operating costs once we get started. And have, it's going to cost what they say it's going to cost. And have are those clear cut? Because we haven't even heard those yet. And I know they're, you know, because electrical bills are going up and there's other things. Do, has it been made abundantly clear? When, if I was to go to Waterloo or to Kitchener right now, can I find somewhere that gives me an exact breakdown of what I'm believing this whole thing is going to cost to operate? So the number we had at the time the project agreement was approved, so that's the agreement with the construction consortium, um, was $1.9 billion over 30 years to build it design it, finance it, um, operate it, and maintain it. So a 30-year cost of almost $2 billion. Yeah. Well, it's... Uh, <laughs> and one, la- one last thing. When, um, in the process of doing this, did you have a lot of changes in the design and in the planning? Or was it pretty much, here it is, and then they started building it? Well, I think even now there are tweaks that go on as, as they're you know, working their way through little changes that are made. Uh, but I think, you know, the route was pretty well set. 
There, I think there was one minor tweak in Waterloo shortly before, but for the most part, things were were pretty well set. We will see if we share the same. Um, I mean, you, you sound. I don't know if the word is optimistic. I mean, certainly there are people, no, but there are, you've been through it because now once upon a time, and you probably know this story as well, in Boston for years, they had what they called the big dig and the half the city was dug up for a subway. And uh, certainly what's happening in KW can't be seen as the same. Um, but nonetheless, at least you're, at least you can see the light at the end of the tunnel now, which is why I say maybe you sound a little bit optimistic that mm-hmm. eventually you'll be able to drive around the city in under four hours. Uh, but I mean, it, I know it's been tough. We've been hearing it's been tough, but you do sound like it's, you know, it, this may be something that can, that people might be happy with. I mean, who, I, I guess, I, I don't know. How, how do you know? I, I really don't know. I guess it's not until people get on the thing and start to experience it and see if it actually clears up traffic and makes it easier to get around that we'll really know, right? Well, and I mean, that's only a part of it. Like really the, the birth of this for the region was encouraging intensification in the cores. And, I mean, there's anecdotal evidence that it is working, that there, that's happening. Um, so I, it's beyond just that transportation piece. So I think um, there will be a lot of measurements people will be making to determine whether they think it was a success. Well, we will see, and I'm sure we'll be back in touch once it gets up and rolling because uh, people here will be wanting to know for sure, and hopefully it'll work better than the one in Edmonton that's had all kinds of problems. That last report I heard, the LRT there, you could actually, I'm not being funny, you could walk faster than the LRT trains were going because there was something wrong with them, so hopefully yours works slightly better than that. Paige Desmond from the Waterloo Record, thanks for the time today, really appreciate it. Thanks, Scott, appreciate it. There, does that, I mean, does that help? Does that answer any of the questions you had? I don't know, because there are pros and there are cons there. One of the things that Paige points out very clearly, and if you've driven to Waterloo anytime recently, you will know what she's talking about. It has been now for two years, two and a half years, an absolute nightmare to get around. I was there twice this year for covering something in in the Waterloo area. And the one time, the first time, I made the mistake of kind of not being fully watching where I was going on my exit to get off. And I got on the, I got off at the wrong exit from what I was used to. Well, holy cow. Once you get off at the wrong exit and you don't know exactly where you're going, because I know Waterloo reasonably well. I don't know it well. Man, oh man, it, it was supposed to be less than a five minute drive, honestly, from the exit I would normally get off at to where I was going. I was driving around, no kidding, on a Saturday. So not even during work week for half an hour, and I still didn't really know where I was going because every detour took me to another detour, took me to another detour. That's one of the things that we are just going to have to accept here when the LRT construction begins. Don't, don't, even if you are the staunchest supporter of the LRT, do not come forward with an argument that this will not be a nightmare for travel in the midst of the construction. It will be. It is going to be horrible. And if you don't believe it, you should have driven to Waterloo to test it out while they were really right in the teeth of the construction because it was really, really rough. And as Paige said, she may have been understating how difficult it was. I talked to someone else from Waterloo today, a friend of mine, and I preparing for this, and I said, how was it? And he said, 
the same thing. You have no idea how difficult it was to get around a lot of the time because of this. Now, does that mean that it was a bad thing? Well, we are going to find out because, as Paige said, the idea here was that this was supposed to build up intensification in the downtown and make it easier to get around. We won't know that until it's up and running, assuming the trains actually get there without another further delay because the trains themselves are now delayed because they can't get them fast enough. There's a lot of challenges with this. This is when you're talking about a project that for them is 1.9 billion for us is allegedly a billion. Although I still don't believe that. I still don't believe that we're going to pull this thing together for a billion dollars, or we're going to have to strip it down to the bones so that our billion dollars really gives us something that is not good enough that it even matters. But whatever happens, we're going to only find that out when the thing gets up and running. But it, we've got a couple days left before the, well, no more than a couple days, but if you really want to see what's left of it, and it, you still won't get the full effect, but if you want to know what it'll be like in construction, go to Waterloo on the weekend and drive around a bit and just see you again, you won't get the full feeling because it's a little better now than it was. It's going to be really rough. Will that have a big payoff at the end that we have to wait and see you're listening to the scott radley show weeknights from seven to nine on am 900 chml way back in the days when music videos were really becoming the way that musical artists in this country and around the world were connecting and establishing their look and their brand and putting out videos all the time he was canada's first vj For those who've forgotten what that means, video jockey. Um, He hosted City Limits, which was the place you would go to watch music videos when they were really first coming into vogue. And then when a startup station called Much Music got going, he was there as one of the originals. He now has a book out about those days. It's called Is This Live? Inside the Wild Early Years of Much Music, the nation's music station. Christopher Ward joins me now. Christopher, thanks for doing this tonight. Hey, Scott, it's my pleasure. Nice to speak with you. I, I have to wonder, as soon as I, I heard the name of this book and I saw what it was about, I, had, I, I immediately wondered, how many times when you were in those early days did you actually utter those words? Is this live? <laughs> in almost a well, panicky I, way. I didn't utter them at all, but often visitors did, and it was an incredulous kind of tone that accompanied the words. They were looking around the chaos of the room. They'd see what looked like real television, and they'd say, <laughs> is this live? <laughs> but there's also a story. <clears throat> there's always a story, of course, Scott. But in this case, it's LaToya Jackson's interview where a giant fire bell that was right above our heads went off in the middle of the interview, <laughs> and it was so loud we couldn't talk, and she leaned into me with that Jackson whisper and said, is there a fire? I said, no. She said, is this live? <laughs> I said, yes. <laughs> so... There you go. I, I, you know, what's amazing to me is, um, again, when I, when I thought I was going to be chatting with you and knew I was going to be it, and I started to think about it, that it's 30 years, more than 30 years ago now, it completely blows me away. Although it's still so fresh because music for me and for people of my generation, and I'm one of the people that you were talking to back then was such and is such an integral part of our life. And I have to believe even today when you're walking around and people stop you, you must hear that all the time from people across this country that you really had an impact and that people were watching back then all the time? Well, people are very kind, um, which, you know, makes me proud of the work that we did. And we obviously made a connection with them. 
But, you know, it's like I, I grew up the generation before then, and I was listening to radio, of course, and the DJs who were on radio, mm. they were my direct line to the thing that I cared about the most in life. And then next generation comes along, and it's the kids that roll out of bed with a Walkman, and they plug them in, and they listen to their favorite band, and they've got their band's T-shirt on, and those were our people. And when I meet those people, you know, with a little less hair, and <laughs> a few years later, um, it's a nice connection for me and, and for them, because we had a great time doing what we did then. But it really mattered. I mean, a lot of people would say, well, come on, you were just playing music videos and interviewing rock stars, and that's true, I suppose, but... It, it mattered to people. Well, it, would all, it was also new. I mean, obviously the whole medium of music video was new. But there was another aspect to it, and that is that how inside the lives of artists we got. Because mm. before then, if you wanted to see your favorite act, it was on, you know, in my age, the Ed Sullivan Show or the, you know, Midnight Special or, you know, Rock Concert, one of those kind of shows. But the artists themselves would only get maybe a glancing moment of actually speaking to the audience. Whereas we started going into the dressing rooms and onto the tour buses and backstage and then seeing them sitting down for like a half an hour extensive interview. I mean, they were being treated with a new respect, as was the audience who cared about those artists. As I mentioned off the top, you had actually been doing City Limits before this even started. So you were you were already kind of into this. So when either Moses Neimer or whoever it was who came to you and said, you know what we're going to do? We're going to start a whole channel doing what you're doing. Did you turn to them and say, that's a brilliant idea? Or did you say, you are out of your mind? There's no way we could do a whole channel on this. Well, remember MTV in the U.S. had already launched three years earlier and was a big deal. So it wasn't the, the strangest idea in the world. But also, when they started City Limits, it was only, um, you know, maybe nine months before much launched. They were going into it with the idea of, let's create something that looks like what, what our idea of a music channel is. And then that'll help us sort of sell the idea um, to the CRTC and get the license. And that's exactly what happened. But the beauty of it is, Chris, that you can't, you're going to do a 24-hour music station. You can't script everything. Well, actually, MTV in the States tried. Did they? Everything okay. Was, yeah, everything was was essentially scripted. Um, I don't know whether they used like uh, teleprompters or what their system was, but it was written. It was rehearsed. They did it till they got it right. All the intros were cut together. There was no music. It wasn't live. So what we did was the exact opposite. I was going to say was very much. Yeah, it was very much in the style of, of like city TV and and just you know what they were doing then, which was breaking down all those traditional barriers. And in our case, trying to break down the barriers between you know what was going on in the studio and the audience at home. Did you guys script anything? No. <laughs> I don't think we would have known how to cope with a script, to be honest with you. But that is serious I mean, flying by the seat of your pants for someone who's live in front of a camera and there are thousands people of people watching. That, that, that's adrenaline time. Well, you know what, though? You, first of all, you feed off that adrenaline. And you also get used to it. That's just your M.O. You walk in every day, and if you did a kind of a rotten show the day before, you got to forget it and move on. It's, it's like being an athlete. If you're the closer and you let in five runs in the ninth and your team loses the game, and you got to show up the next day and still be able to deliver, right? So um, we loved that aspect of it, and so did the artists. They really responded to the liveness of much. 
All right, and and I get your, it's a great comparison with the closer and having a, you know blowing a save or whatever else, but. There is still something about being, and you guys were all very young still at that time, uh, about being there on the air and some huge star walks in. And now, Christopher Ward, you, you're going to be interviewing whoever and doing it live on TV, and we don't really know what's going to happen. There is something, as I say, I, let me go back to that, really seat of the pants, flying by the seat of the pants about that. There is, and that was the joy of it. Um, I mean, and I did interview huge artists, and I talk about you know most of them in the book, whether it's Peter Gabriel or Kate Bush or George Harrison. I mean, you know, when you grow up loving the Beatles, yep. that's your reason for picking up a guitar, and certainly was in my case. And a live Beatle walks into the studio and sits down, you know, kind of knee to knee with you and looks in your eyes and goes, okay, what do you got, kid? <laughs> it's like, <laughs> you better show up in with everything you've got. Now, now... There wasn't anything scripted, Scott, but in my case, um, it was researched. Mm. Arguably, a George Harrison interview I've been, re- I've been researching for my entire life. Uh, but aside from that, I mean, when I knew an act was coming in, I immediately delved into all their music, r- read all the press stuff that I could possibly get, and was fully prepared you know, with the sort of line of questioning that I was going to do. Was there ever, uh, did, but they would show up sometimes without a lot of notice, right? Uh, once in a while, you'd be, you'd be on the spot yeah. and they go, hey, Chris, go. Well, Lori Brown tells a story of how she came back from vacation and came in and they went, oh, David Bowie's here this afternoon. <laughs> it's like, oh, really? <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, you don't, you don't say no. Um, so, yeah, but it made it exciting. It really did. Did you, you ever? Just had, you just had to have your game on all the time. Did you ever feel when you were doing it that you were out of control, or that the situation was almost too big and you really had to swallow hard to be able to pull it off? There were a few of those, not a lot. The one that I think that terrified me the most uh, was Leonard Cohen, and not because of anything that he did, but because of my anticipation. I'd grown up reading his poetry. I think I discovered sex thanks to Leonard Cohen. <laughs> and I really was intimidated by this giant of literature and songwriting. I mean, you know, he's Leonard Cohen. And, of course, when we sat down and it started, I mean, he couldn't have been more gracious, more generous with his, you know, putting out his ideas. And, and it was an amazing experience. But in the moment, you know, I was kind of shaking inside for sure. Was traditionally, more often than not, was that the response? Were, the, were most of the musicians who came in gentlemen or ladies, or did you have the odd one that at the end of it you said, oh, I never want to talk to that person again? Well, well there's a whole chapter in the book called The Worst Interviews Ever. <laughs> <laughs> Care to share? There's a whole, oh, yeah, sure, there's a lot of them. I mean, talk, interestingly, talking to uh, Erica and to Laurie Brown, uh, both of them chose Kiss as their worst interviews of all time. And I think it was just because of the attitude towards women and the general... I was going to say, yeah, they're trying to pick them up the whole time. Yeah, I mean, they were gross. <laughs> but there were, you know, there were a lot of bands that, you know, they hadn't had this exposure before. And if they get a hit, and they have a hit video, suddenly they go from zero to 60 overnight. And they came in with a lot of attitude sometimes, just like they had the world by the tail. And it was live, so it wasn't like you could go back later and edit it out and take out all the, you know, the bits you didn't enjoy. But you just kind of went with it, and, and you just allow them to hang themselves, basically. You know, when they're when they act like, well, I won't use the word, but you know what I'm going to say. I know what you're going to say. Yeah. Yeah. Then you just kind of go, okay, 
that's who you are, now I'm just going to let your audience see you for what you are. And you don't worry about it. I, Denise tells a story about um, interviewing Chris Isaac, who had a fairly high opinion of Chris Isaac. And um, I guess uh, the interview was, went so badly that at one point she, she sort of went, you don't really want to be here, do you? I mean, he's kind of like, no. And, and so he threw his bike down and walked away, which actually makes great television. Yeah, it does. And then he wrote her a, a letter of apology, a postcard of apology, although she says she thinks the record company dictated it to him. But he was very funny. He was a very witty, very bright guy. And she said, so when it came time for him to come back, <laughs> she said, she went, oh, oh all right. And he, she said he, she interviewed him three times, and he was the same every time. <laughs> <laughs> so some people, you know, I mean, honestly, the attitude sometimes works. I mean, look at a look at a guy like David Lee Roth. He sold attitude as much as he sold singing. I think. Yeah, yeah. That you you would have now. I mean, depending on when a star or when a musician was going to come in, it may have been on your shift in which, in while you were on the air, which would have then meant you got to do it, or you would have heard that they were coming in at a different time, and one of your colleagues would have, would have had a chance to do it. Who, who did you not get to interview that you really, really wish that you would have had a crack at? Well, you know, that's a, that's a great question. And some of them are a little obscure, maybe, but they were just because, you know, I was doing something out of town or whatever and couldn't do it. Like Stevie Wonder came in, and I was supposed to do that interview. And then it ended up that they sent me on assignment somewhere. I can't remember the details. And that was one of those ones I just watched it back. And, you know, I, I think it was Denise, and she did a great job. But, of course, I, all the time I was going, oh, man, oh, you know, and the other one was um, uh, who was it? It's one of the one of the great blues musicians, um, John Lee Hooker, mm. I think. And kind of an obscure character to have, you know, in a music video channel. But you know, I mean, he was huge in his time. And they gave that to Erica, and I really wanted that interview. But you know, you can't you can't have them all, right? You mentioned a number of the of the other hosts, the other VJs, and it sounds like from what I'm hearing from you that most of the memories and most of the reminiscences that they have are fond ones. Was that the sense you got when you talked to them for this book, that even as they look back on this time, that it was a very positive thing for them? Or are there some, whether you want to name them or not, who look back and go, you know, that was an absolute stupid thing that I did? You know, Scott, there's some of both. And again, I, I recount them because I talk to all the VJs in, in the book. So some of them, I won't say they're bitter, but some of their memories are not, you know, that golden glow of nostalgia that people tend to have looking back at something from 25, 30 years ago. I mean, for the most part, we, our recollection is that we had a fantastic time, that it all went by too quickly and it was just a blur of events and people and exciting changes and new things happening. But, um, I mean, Erica, she got roasted in public in many ways. Um, she grew up in public, and, and that's a tough gig for anyone. So you've got an audience that's very critical. And in, in, in her case, she was the youngest on-air person and the closest in age to the viewer. And I think um, there were a lot of viewers who, whose attitude was, well, I could do that better than her. Mm -hmm. she's, she's this, she's that. And she got 
letters, oh, just the nastiest stuff, critiquing her appearance or things that she'd said or the way that she'd interviewed somebody. And it was a very toughening kind of experience for her. And that was before Twitter. That was before, well, exactly. Can you imagine? No, I can't. What it's like. And here's the thing, because you've mentioned a number of them, and, and just for, for people who watched, for people, again, of, of the era who watched this, those names, some of the ones you mentioned, are, are very familiar, even though you said Erica M. and Michael Williams and yourself and mm. Steve Anthony and Kim Clark Champness, and they were in that era. They were huge names, huge personalities. You guys were very, very, very famous. I'm sure you got recognized all the time, yet almost all of you, to one degree or another, have kind of stepped out of the spotlight a, bit, a little. You don't see, I mean, it, it's not that it's continued on. Was that intentional or is that just because you can't necessarily follow that up with another thing just like it? Well, I think that's the natural trajectory of a career is, you know, if you're an on-air person, then if you're going to continue on in the same business, you, you move to a, a different area, sometimes more of a production area or something like that. I mean, Steve Anthony is still on television. He's doing the breakfast TV show. Um, Erica has a very active, um, uh, online presence called Yummy Mummy Club, Mm -hmm. talking to young mothers about, you know, what's, what's going on in their lives. So that, you know, that relies on a public presence. It's not the same as being on much music every day and the amount of heat that you, you get, um, for that kind of presence in people's living rooms. But I think it's just a natural progression. Um, for me, when I left, I mean, I had the success of writing uh, Atlanta Miles' first record. So it was an opportunity for me, and I moved to Los Angeles. So I became instantly anonymous, which was great. <laughs> <laughs> I actually was, yeah, that was much better. Could you have ever imagined, out of all those people that were on the air, and I mentioned some of them, honestly, could you have ever imagined that one day J.D. Roberts would become a senior correspondent at the White House for one of the American <laughs> networks? Because I couldn't. Well, you know, it's interesting, because when he went to news, people were very skeptical, because they saw him as a rock guy. You know, they, they, they saw him, uh, you know, interviewing U2 and, and Triumph and Rush, and they, 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 they pigeonholed him. Um, and I think that was unfortunate, because he is obviously a, a, a tremendous broadcaster. Mm-hmm. And, he, like, I remember watching him the first time he did a news uh, uh, an election broadcast on, I think it was on City, T- City TV. And that's a, as you may know, that's a juggling act because you've got new information constantly streaming in from all different directions. And you've got an earpiece that somebody's talking to. You've got people waving at you and counting you down and counting you in. He handled it effortlessly. And I thought, you know, this guy was born for this. I asked him, I said, what did you learn from much that you were able to reapply once you were a news guy. And he said, well, I was on the rooftop of a building in Atlanta during the shootings in the Olympics. And he said, and I had to keep going and keep going and keep going. And he said, they just kept coming back to me and back to me. He said, thanks so much. I knew exactly what to do. Chris, we just have, talking with uh, Christopher War. we just have a minute left here. Clearly much music is still doing good things. And, 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 but at the same time, it doesn't, it's impossible. It doesn't have the same cultural, pop culture significance or impact that it did back when you guys got rolling. And I know times have changed, but why has it been impossible for that to stay the same? What's changed in the music business that it's just not possible for a place like that to have the same impact? Well, on the most fundamental level, Scott, I mean, it's an on-demand culture now. I mean, if my daughter wants to see 
you know, the new Bon Iver video, uh, she's going to go to YouTube to get it. She's not going to sit in front of the television and wait for it to come up the way people did in 1987. So there's that aspect of it, but also there's more choices for entertainment. There's a myriad number of possibilities on, you know, on, on cable and online where you can entertain yourself. Back then, we were kind of like the only game in town. So I, I think it is just you know, the natural cultural changes. And, and what they do, they, they're still very, very connected to youth culture. Yep, yep. It's just in a different way. I, I, I know exactly what you're talking about because I recall back in, I don't know what year it was, watching the little countdown clock on Much Music because you guys were going to show the, the world premiere or the Canadian premiere of Thriller, Michael Jackson's video, and it was like this huge oh, countdown, right. and you sat there. Yeah. You would have gone online now to watch it, but instead we sat by the TV for the countdown waiting to see yeah. this thing. That would never happen again. Well, it was exciting, wasn't it? It, I mean, was. it was. sort of. I mean, I do compare it to a sporting event, you know, something where it's happening right in front of your eyes, and, and it, it was also kind of like... Um, improv theater you know if you go to see second city or something it was it, it was fantastic people love when you fall on your face and they love watching <laughs> you figure out how you're going to get back up again it was fantastic television. Uh, Christopher Ward, the book is called Is This Live? Inside the Wild Early Years of Much Music, the Nation's Music Station. I know you can get it at your website, uh, ChristopherWard.ca. Uh, I think you can get it on Kobo because I went and looked. Uh, Christopher, really appreciate the time today. Thanks for doing this. Hey, Scott. It was a pleasure talking with you. That is uh, Christopher Ward, the original VJ from Much Music. Uh, great memories of that place. If you were, again, if that was something you watched back in the day when it was at its high-flying best man that was a a great channel to watch because of that falling on faces and making great television you're listening to the scott radley show weeknights from seven to nine on am 900 chml just before i get on with what we were going to talk about the segment i did want to i I couldn't fit it in in the first hour but I, i wanted to maybe someone out there has shared this experience i it did not dawn on me i wasn't going to talk about this until i was coming into the studio tonight And I did something and I realized, I don't know if it's just me that is unusual or if other people do this as well. And then I asked someone else and they do it too. So I want to know if you do this. I went to get a coffee in the little cafeteria kitchen, kitchenette thing they have here in the station. And I opened the cupboard and there were a variety of coffee mugs that I could have chosen. The logical response would have been just to reach the coffee mug that is closest to the front of the cupboard. Why wouldn't you? But that one was a Smurfs mug. It had Smurfs on it. And for some reason, and it didn't dawn on me until after I'd done it, I didn't grab the Smurf mug. I reached behind it to grab a mug that actually has the station's call letters, AM 900 CHML mug on it. And as I'm pouring the coffee, I was thinking to myself, that either I am very, very strange or maybe other people do this too. When you go to grab a coffee or when you go to pour yourself a tea, do you select a mug if you have a choice and it's not just all matching mugs? Do you actually go and grab one that you actually like better? Which is very odd. Not, you can call 905-645-3221 or star 9900 if you do this. Because my initial reaction was, I must be the weirdest guy in the world to do this. Because me taking this mug that I got as opposed to the Smurf picture mug changes nothing in the flavor of the coffee. And yet for some reason, and I do this at home too, I root around in the in the cupboard to get the mug that I like. And it's not necessarily for a shape, it's the picture on the mug. And I don't know why I do that. It just dawned on me. I have no idea why 
it matters to me that I would grab a mug with a picture on the outside that would be better than another picture because there's no flavor. It, it affects nothing. Raymond is on the line. Raymond, how are you this evening? Good. Yourself? I'm good. Are you a mug selector or are you a grab the first mug and just go with it guy? I am a mug selector. I actually have a certain mug that is the only one I will use. We have a uh, <laughs> different rock band mugs in our house because we're uh, rock and roll music fans. The Rolling Stones are my favorite band, so I will only use the Rolling Stones mug. <laughs> so you'll root around in the cupboard until you can find it. Exactly. I do not care what other mug is in there. It will never replace the Rolling Stones mug. And now, okay, so explain to me this. And anyone else who agrees with Raymond and I, 905-645-3221 or star 9900. Uh, Raymond, why, why do we do this? Just for me, it's because of the image on it. It shows pride for me of what I'm drinking all right. out of. All right, all right. So there's a pride factor here. There's something, you're, you're making a statement about your choice of what you want to drink out of. Right, exactly. When people are looking at me, I want them to see me drinking out of that mug because it identifies who I am. Raymond, you know what? You make sense. I appreciate your call. Thanks. Thank you. Bye. Uh, okay, so Raymond wants people to know that he's a Stones fan, and I suppose that that argument would have worked for me tonight when I didn't want to grab the Smurf mug if I thought someone was going to be watching me, but no one's watching me, and yet here I am still unable to grab the Smurf mug because somehow that would not have been as pleasurable a coffee-drinking experience. And so I passed it up and left it for the next person, even though it was right at the front of the cupboard. I don't know why I did that. Joel joins me now. Joel, how are you tonight? Hey, I'm doing awesome. All right, so now, do you share Raymond and my little weird thing here that we have to have the right coffee mug, or do you grab whatever? No, I, I could not agree with you more. I've got a whole bunch of different mugs in my house. I actually uh, I, I do therapy out of my house, so I have a lot of different clients. And I always have to ask them, do you like the thin rim? Do you want the fat, wide, like soup kind of mug? <laughs> For me, like I have a certain mug I always drink out of. It's it's like the perfect blend of uh, you know the thickness of the rim, and it's got to hold just enough coffee to stay hot long enough. You're, you know, so you're an expert in this, but here here's my question then, Joel, is what I don't understand. I have one of those at home too. I have a mug that I got from the uh, Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown, New York. It's kind of a baseballish mug. That is my mug. That's my go-to mug. But if I'm always going to only drink out of that, why don't I just throw out all the other ones if I'm never going to use them? I know. Well, you got to have friends, though, right? And, and everybody's got a opinion. <laughs> I suppose you're right. Uh, so, Joel, yours, which one do you use? Mine actually says Cape Breton on the side. It kind of looks a bit enamel, like a camping mug, but it isn't. It's actually still ceramic. And uh, it just holds a good volume of coffee. It's more than your normal cup, but it's not one of those big trucker slurpy things. Joel, and uh, it just makes me happy. Uh, and again, you know what? That's the perfect reason. I just can't understand why it does. But you're absolutely right. There's, you're, you're, you're bang on, Joel. Really appreciate the call tonight. Thanks. Absolutely. Uh, I, I, 905-645-3221 or star 9900. Do you have a mug that you have to use, that you will root around in your closet rather than just be doing the obvious thing and the easy thing? Because here's the problem. If you have that mug and you have to root around in the closet, I'm willing to bet that some of you have actually then caused a chain reaction falling over of all the other mugs and maybe something breaking on the kitchen counter just to get the mug you like, as opposed to just saying, you know what, there's just one at the front of the cabinet. It's fine. It's a mug. It's going to hold my coffee or my tea. Nothing's leaking out of it. I'm not even... Here's the thing. 
when I was drinking this tonight, and it's gone now, I did not once even look at the outside of the mug to enjoy the Vista. I just drank it and didn't even realize what I was drinking. I could have had a mug that was a picture of a bare bum staring back at me, and it wouldn't have, wouldn't have, I wouldn't have even noticed. I don't own one of those mugs, just for the record. Luke, you you do you have a mug? No, I don't have mugs because I don't drink coffee. But do you have a cup? I have a glass because I love pint glasses, and I have this one particular one that is shaped like a football. It's a Coors Light glass. It is my second copy because I broke the first one yeah, and see? was distraught about that. But I found a second one, and it's the glass I always go to. Nine zero five six four five three two two one or star nine nine hundred. Why? Do we have to have the particular mug to drink our coffee or tea or hot chocolate out of when they all will give us a drink that tastes exactly the same? And we're not even looking at the picture on it. We're not even looking at the picture on it. Maybe you do. I don't know. I don't. I don't. When I pick up my coffee, it goes directly from the table to my lips absentmindedly. I don't pick it up and pull it in front of my eyes for a quick view of my cup to feel better about it. John joins me now. John, how are you tonight? Great. How are you? Good. Are you one of us who has to have the right mug, or do you just grab whatever's front of the cabinet? I got to have the same mug every day. <laughs> Which is what? What's your mug? Mine's a giant tiger. It says, proud to be Canadian on it. I have to use the same one every day. And and so what happens if it's at the back of the closet? Are you in there up to your elbows digging around? If it's dirty, I have to wash it. <laughs> but I bet you have other mugs in the house and you still avoid them, even if it's dirty. You'll you'll still go and clean the one rather than get just get a clean one. Exactly. That's... Why do you think we do that, John? Oh, I don't know. Just mental. I guess. I don't know. <laughs> Appreciate the call, John. Thanks. Thanks, bye. I, I, look, that's, that's a clean sweep so far. 905-645-3221 or star 9900. Do you share that? If you're out there and you are not sharing this psychological overpass or whatever you want to call it that we have to get by, I'd love to hear from you too. If you're one of those people who can simply go to the cupboard and take whatever mug there is, I'd love to hear from you because you seem to be in the minority. And here's the other part. I could see us doing this at home where we have all of our favorite mugs where you've bought a mug or you've picked it up somewhere and it's for whatever reason it doesn't really make any sense psychologists would have a heyday with this psychiatrists would love this discussion all of us people who have these mental things but here's the thing i went into the cupboard here at at the chml and there were a selection of mugs but within they're not even my mugs but within that particular choice, I had to narrow it down to one that I thought somehow would enhance the coffee drinking experience because Smurfs weren't going to do it for me. And I can't tell you why. I don't mind the Smurfs. It's not that I've got some issue with Smurfs. I just thought that Smurfs would not be as good a cup of coffee. And I don't understand it. I am with you on that because while I explained my football glass, uh, the <laughs> first time I ever drank out of uh, that particular shape of glass was here because there used to be one here and i would search it out we have where we used to have three different kitchens in this building and i would go to each of the three kitchens to find this glass so that i could drink my water out of it not that it had any impact on the quality of the water i just as i say it never 
Weirdly, this never dawned on me until I was coming into the studio tonight. And as I was pouring the coffee, I suddenly said, why did I just do that? Why did it matter to me that I had that mug? I have no idea why that was. Chris joins me on the line now. Chris, how are you tonight? Oh, I'm good. I'm good. Are you are you a mugger like us? Oh, glad yes. In fact, I have <laughs> seasonal mugs. That if it depends on the time of the year. If if uh, it's the summer, I have a nice steel mug that I have to have to take out on the back deck and on a Sunday morning and drink my pot of coffee with it. Uh, this time of year, I have to drink my Bruins mug. I'm a diehard Bruins fan, so yeah. Um, I don't know whether it's because my wife loves her flowery mugs, and I just have this thing that I'm not drinking out of a flowery mug. So yeah, I move those out of the side. Um, Sometimes I think if I'm feeling nostalgic, uh, we've got vacation mugs, and I seem to want to grab one of those. So, yeah, no, I think just about every time I open the cupboard, there's a, I think before I grab a mug, I don't just, and you're right, it's kind of funny. Why don't we just grab the first one and it with coffee and leave? Chris, you know what I'm starting to wonder now? We've had four calls tonight on this so far, all by all from guys. So we're all on the same page. I wonder if this is a guy thing. I wonder if the women out there also have the same need to grab their particular mug, or if this is just a weird, some sort of chromosomal guy thing that has affected our brain that we're creatures of habit and have to have the same one. No, my wife has her mugs. Like, she she has her certain flower mugs that sometimes she'll want to grab, again, depending on, like, she maybe wants a, a fall mug for the fall, and um, she has a set of bird mugs that she bought that she just <laughs> liked bird pictures on them, and... So, yeah. Well, we're we're all apparently a weird, weird people. John I, or Chris, I really appreciate the call. Thank you. Not a problem. Bye. Uh, there we go. Every single person apparently has this issue, which I suppose is perfect for the mug making people because if we all have to have a certain mug, and that means that if we then go to the store and buy our mug, because you're, I'm guessing for most people that their mug they have to drink from if they have a choice is one they've chosen. That means that if that mug breaks or if they can, if you can come up with a new mug design that might catch your eye, that will make you even more inclined to drink. I don't know. It, the whole thing doesn't make any sense to me whatsoever. Not, not whatsoever. I can't understand the psychological explanation behind this whatsoever. And in fact, I am greatly relieved by the phone calls tonight and by Luke jumping in because I truly, when I did this, thought that it indicated some sort of deep psychological problem that I was suffering that I could not that I would somehow imagine that my beverage would be better in a certain mug. So I'm glad to know that well, maybe it is a problem. Maybe we all have sight, but at least we're all in it together. At least we all have the psychological mug problems together. Who knew? But at least now think about this next time you go get a coffee. And here's your test. Here's your test. Next time, all of you who have this, when you go to the closet or the cupboard, and your first inclination is to reach for that mug that you think, oh, no, I'll take that one. Reach for another one and see if your coffee doesn't taste as good. See if it bothers you the whole time. I don't know. It's just a psychological experiment. I have no idea if it'll work. I'm going to do it tomorrow night. Tomorrow night when I come in here, I am going to go to the, cl- the cupboard and I am going to take the cup that is least appealing to me and see if my coffee drinking experience is less pleasurable. Try that at home tomorrow. Let me know. Send me an email, radley at 900chml.com. Send me an email and tell me, as an experiment, if you choose the cup that doesn't appeal to you intentionally, does your coffee or tea not taste as good? I would love to know. Maybe we can, maybe we can get a grant and do a, a study here on the air. 
raised thousands and thousands. You know, governments give grants for a lot stupider things than this. We could get a scientific grant on this show to do coffee mug experiments. Luke, get to work on that. The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900. AM 900 CHML.